The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are in Luke 5. Um, I will be reading the text, and if you don't have a Bible, all the verses will be up on the screen, just so that we're all kind of in this together, okay? Um, all right, I want to le- read our whole section. We'll pray, and then we'll uh, start looking at this together. Um, Luke 5, starting in verse 1 uh, up to 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he, that is Jesus, was standing by the lake of uh, Gennesaret. He saw two boats by the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets uh, and let out your nets for for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let out the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to the partners in the boat, in the other boat, to come and help them, and they came and filled both of the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And, all, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Fathers, we look at your word this morning and consider this beginning moment of discipleship in the life of Jesus and his followers, would we be astonished like that? Not merely at who Jesus is and the miracles and the power that he exercises, but more importantly, in who he is at his heart, who he is for us. And would we experience his grace this morning to be fresh and new disciples who follow him? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, is anybody familiar with uh, the way storytelling happens in terms of like external and internal conflict? Is this familiar to anybody? Like external conflict, internal conflict? Rahana's familiar. A few other people are familiar. Okay. So let me give you an illustration because you guys know um, how I love serious cinema. Um, Gardens of the Galaxy, right? Right. The external conflict of Gardens of the Galaxy, as Peter Quill says at the end, is uh, we're all a bunch of losers. Right. Right. They're all a bunch of ragamuffin kind of. They've all been kind of discarded by the world around them. They're all just kind of rough and tumble like they would rather kill each other than be friends. Like they're all just kind of people who've lost stuff, to quote Peter Quill. Right. But what is the internal conflict for them? The internal conflict is ultimately that they are each of them searching for family, right? That's the endearing dynamic of that whole movie, right? They're all kind of like outsiders. They're all trying to figure out their lives. 
They're rough. They've got sharp edges. They want to kill each other. That's the external stuff. But on the inside, there is this yearning for them to have a family. When we come to this passage, we're presented with this question that is similar to this external and internal conflict dynamic. Externally, we have watched Jesus proclaim for who he is and now twice gone to two different towns, and both towns have tried to possess Jesus in a way that basically denies his message, kind of breaks what he's about, and trying to own him for themselves, right? And in both situations, Jesus has rejected them, right? Jesus has rejected both of these towns from being his followers, right? Not just any towns, his hometown, one of being one of them. And so as we get into the Gospel of Luke, as a good storyteller, the internal conflict for us should be something along the lines of, how do you actually become a disciple? I mean, we all know Jesus and his disciples. Like, that's one of the big phrases. I mean, if you've ever been around the Bible, you know, Jesus, he had disciples. There were people who followed him. Right? That's not unique. Any culture has that kind of dynamic of, right, the teacher and the followers, right, whether you're, whether you're in the the West with Christianity, or in the East with Buddhism, everybody has their main teacher and how to be a follower. And now twice we've run into stories where people have been rejected from being disciples. So the presenting question that this passage demands of us is, how do we become disciples? What does that mean? We then are brought into that at the deeper level, the internal dynamic, through Peter, right? This is Pope Peter, for those of you who come from Catholic tradition, right? This is Peter, the big kind of, he is one of the main figures to the rest of the New Testament. There's 12 apostles, ultimately. Four of them are on the record with having said anything, and Peter says the most, right? So we're going to kind of talk a little bit about Peter as we go through this. Do I need to distinguish as we're going through this? I'm saying this having just had our elder Peter up here. Do I need to distinguish Apostle Peter <laughs> from the elder Peter? Okay, we're good, because I would love to talk about how much older Peter is than me. Um, but <laughs> sorry, okay. We, the internal dynamic for Peter in this passage, we want to think through what changes for him as he is brought into this question, what, how do you become a disciple? What changes on the inside for him? How does he, how does he make this, jump this gap, you might say, or cross this line of going from not being a disciple to being a disciple. That's what we're going to be thinking through. We're going to kind of be going through at this in two different dynamics. But here's the main point of what we're looking at. Here's kind of the main point of the sermon that we're talking about. Disciples follow the disciple maker because of how he graciously changes us. This is what we're going to see through this story. And the reality is we're going to kind of go at the same text at two different angles and see two different dynamics of this. But disciples follow the disciple maker because of how he graciously changes us. So let's, let's kind of pick up here. We just read this passage, but we're going to pick up here in verse 4, kind of the main interaction between Peter and Jesus. And then we'll go to the second point of the sermon. We'll kind of look at the outsides of this. And when he had finished speaking, that's Jesus... He said to Simon, and Simon and Peter are just basically the same names, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. 
But at your word, I will let down the net. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they had begun, they, so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. So, one of the dynamics that we have when we in- interact with um, stories of the disciples and Jesus is that we can kind of forget that the reality is this was a key moment in the life of Peter with Jesus, but it's very likely that Peter knew who Jesus was and maybe had talked to him before, interacted with him in some way or the other. So they weren't just like complete strangers. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read this passage, I've kind of come at this and I'm like, bro, like Peter goes from, I mean, if you never had met me, if I just walked up up to you on the street, said, hey, Mike, come follow me. It'd be like, who are you? Get away from me. Like, you know, there's more familiarity than this passage leads on. But the reality is that while Peter knew who Jesus was, so there's some familiarity because he was like, okay, teacher, like I know you're important. There's more that begins to happen as Jesus zeroes in on Peter, Simon, and we come to this sort of this miracle here. Now, when we read this, uh, we're close enough to the coast where you can kind of like have like in your mental image, like what nets look like. And we know you use nets to catch fish. And we're kind of like, okay, like you got the nylon strings or you got really thin strings. And like, what's the big deal? Like, they just caught a bunch of fish. Here's a part of the story that we kind of missed that's in the Greek text here. The, the nets that were used were nets that were only used for fishing at night. The way they fish, because you see that they're cleaning their nets. That's what they're doing. They've just come off of fishing at night. The nets, the, the material in them was very thick and broad. So it created not like thin nets, like what you and I might use to like, you know, pick up fish when we go fishing or like catch a butterfly in the air or that type of like very kind of thin net. This is like a really thick material. You think of like more um, like yarn, like thick yarn type material that would have been used. So the reason they fished with that at night is because the fish couldn't see the net, right? The fish can't see the net at night. And you're thinking, if you ever, any of your hunters or anything like that, like typically hunt or fish late at night, early in the morning, because that's when all those guys are all kind of out doing their thing. So the miracle here is not just that Jesus like, I'm going to make fish suddenly appear. The miracle here is that Jesus knows, look, this is not when you're supposed to be fishing. You're not using the right type of tool for what you're doing, what I'm asking you to do. Which highlights the reality that when Jesus says, Peter, throw out your nets on the other side of the boat, He's breaking the purpose of the net, right? He's breaking the whole model, and he's saying to Peter, look, I'm not an idiot. I know that you're a fisherman. You're the master of your craft here. Do the exact opposite of what you said. So when Peter throws out the net, it's a net that's supposed to be used at nighttime, used during the daytime, thrown out. I'm not exactly sure, like, what the dynamics are of the fish and how they get there. I'm just going to say, like, another, like, just put on the scoreboard for miracles for Jesus, like, scoreboard miracle number whatever it is at this point. Like, maybe it was one fish that suddenly got multiplied into 6,000. I don't know what it is, but it's enough where you've got expert fishermen that pull in the net, 
fills two boats worth and the boats begin to sink, like that's a lot of fish. I don't know all the details, but that's what you get. Peter recognizes, and whatever happens there, there's only one person who can make that type of, not just a trick, like this isn't just kind of like a David Blaine, like you know, trick of hand sort of thing, right? This is fish have come out of nowhere. Fish are not out during this time of the day. And they've been multiplied, gathered together, whatever it is, so that now the two boats worth of fish are breaking. There's one person in this world that can do that. He is standing in the presence of the Lord himself. He recognizes, I'm not sure that Peter totally understands this is the second person of the Trinity incarnate type thing, but he recognizes the Lord is here, I shouldn't be. And that's how he responds, right? Verse 8, but when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Here we come to the heart of how Peter changes from an observer to a disciple. He recognizes that the Lord himself, in one way or the other, is present. And he recognizes that he is not somebody that easily has an audience he has no claim to like flag down the Almighty to bring him to hang out in his boat on the sea seashore some random day of the week. He recognizes that this is not the place that he should be. Now, does Peter recognize, hey, I'm a sinner, I've broken all Ten Commandments? I don't know about that. Like we're gonna kind of see how that develops over Peter's life, but he recognizes that there is a moral bankruptcy in him. There is a place in which he does not have a claim to what's going on and that Jesus is somebody special. So you have on the one hand, Peter saying, I'm a sinner. There's a moral bankruptcy. But then verse 11, right? And when they, I'm sorry, verse 10, Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. It's interesting. When Peter says, I'm a sinful man, O Lord, He's addressing God. He's using a term, I'm addressing God. Jesus does not deflect that. He owns it, says, don't be afraid. You're both a sinner in the presence of God, and you're in the presence of a God who wants you. Don't be afraid. These are the entry points, so to speak, of discipleship. I don't belong here, and I'm wanted here. That's how we become a disciple. I don't belong to be with God but God wants me and I'm here. That's the free invitation of how do you become a disciple? It's not, you know what? I grew up in the right family. I grew up next to Jesus. I went to church every Sunday. No claims that you can kind of like build your resume out with God. God looks at us and says, I want you. And we look at God and say, we don't deserve to be here. That's why I want you. That's why I want you in my family. Now, there's a pattern here that helps us understand what exactly is going to happen with the discipleship stuff so that we understand kind of the course of discipleship for what Peter's going to be walking into. Can we pull up Isaiah? If any of you read your Bible before, Isaiah is a big book right in the middle. Isaiah 6 is a big, important story. Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1, the year of the, in the year of the king Uzziah died... I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robes filled the temple. 
Above him stood the seraphim. That's a certain type of angel. Six, each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, uh, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Right? These are not the kind of angels that you see on TV where they're like you and me with like the wings on their backs. Like these are like the scary kind. Um, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. So you might say this is a revelation of who God is. This is Isaiah 6. Isaiah is ushered into God's presence. He sees God for who he is. He's filled in this temple with angels that are not like the nice-looking angels. They're kind of scary-looking angels, intimidating. This is God's presence fully unveiled. There's nothing hidden. Oh, my gosh, this is scary. Awestruck, glorious. This is God's name declared for who he is. Next verse. Uh, next slide over. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And the one of the seraphim flew to me, and having in his hand a burning coal that had taken tongs from the altar, they had taken tongs from the altar, he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atones for This is, there are kind of multiple responses in this. There's Isaiah's response to, I don't belong to be here. I, I, I don't belong in this situation of seeing who God is. And then it's matched by God's angels saying, you do belong here because God wants you here. And that's the only ticket in. Not because you earn it, but because God wants you here. There's a response, response both ways. Isaiah says, I don't belong here. There's an assurance you do belong here. And then kind of go over to this final slide here. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And God said, go and say to this people. And Isaiah's message is judgment for the people of Israel because of how they'd screwed up. But the important part here is that there is an invitation for Isaiah to now reflect who God is, Right? God's word has invited Isaiah into his presence, revealed who God is to Isaiah. Isaiah responds to what this means both about him and who God is. And then God's assurance to him is, now go and reflect. Now, when we look at this passage here, do you begin to kind of feel the strong echoes between Isaiah 6 and Matthew, right? You have Jesus showing up in Matthew's boat, not only teaching, but then he does a miracle. He reveals who he is. And Matthew's response, or I'm sorry, Peter's response is, depart from me. I am a sinful man, O Lord. A recognition, I don't belong to be here. And then there's a pattern that follows. Jesus says in verse 10, do not be afraid. Similar to this assurance from the angel in Isaiah 6. This is God's invitation. You belong here because God wants you here. Now, go and reflect him. And here we have, do not be afraid, Peter, for now you will be catching men. See, there's a pattern. Old Testament, New Testament, always the same. God reveals who he is. We respond to who God is. And then we reflect it. So this is a simple version of that. But can we put this up here? This is a cycle of what it might mean to change or discipleship. Right? What does Jesus reveal about himself to Peter? 
How do you reply to what God's shown you and how we respond? And there's a response from God of assurance and grace. And then there's a reflection. How does this picture of Jesus shape your life? That's, that's what Peter is now invited into and what it means to be a disciple. Now, we could go through this and just kind of figure out, like, just pick up any kind of one of our issues, whatever they are. Uh, to keep with the passage, I thought it would just be interesting just to kind of throw out three or four scenarios of how we see this cycle of change work in Peter's life. Because the cycle is not a one-time, like, once you see, then you respond, then you re- uh, reflect, and that you, you're done. Like, that issue in your life is solved. This is a repeated cycle that happens over and over and over. This is, the, this is effectively the, the, the cogs, you might say, of how discipleship works in our lives. God reveals something about who he is. We respond to who he is in that revelation of what, it, what he's like. And then we reflect that in our lives. Like it's, a, it's a recurring cycle. And it's a recurring cycle that tends to go deeper and deeper on our, on our issues, right? Like we said earlier, the Apostle Peter... Uh, is certainly known for being foot-and-mouth type um, person, right? I like him about that. I like that about him because the reality is that when you, when you come to Peter in the New Testament, you know who he is. Like, you, he's not hiding anything, right? So think about the crucifixion, right? You have at the end of all the gospel accounts, Peter very boisterously, like it's one of like the main things. What does Peter say? I will never desert you. And then, not only does he say, I will never desert you, but he cuts off a guy's ear to defend Jesus. Please, if I ever get into an altercation and you're out there with me, don't do that. Don't, don't slice somebody's ear off for me. <laughs> and I won't do it for you probably either, just so you know. Um, but <laughs> I love you guys, but I'm not cutting somebody's ear off for you. No Mike Tyson already. Sorry, is that some... Anybody know Mike Tyson? Okay, all right, that, that happened when I was a kid. Sorry, this is going to get back on track, Jacob. So Peter does all these boisterous things. And then what, is God, what does God reveal to him in that situation? Peter, you're so unstable that at the, at the chiding of a child by a fireplace, you deny Jesus three times at the foot of the cross where God's compassion and grace covers all your sin. Jesus reveals Peter's deepest needs. You, you're all boisterous and talk. But when it comes to who's the Lord of your heart, Peter, there's still some work to do. Peter responds. In that moment, he responds in shame and runs away. And then the reflection, well, remember the end of, gospel, of the Gospel of John in John 21? Peter is all fixated. Once Jesus reveals himself after the resurrection, he's all fixated. What's going to happen to the apostle John? We all know that he's your bestie, right? It's Jesus and John, besties for life, right? And Peter's all fixated on that. And Jesus, what does he do? Three times, he speaks compassion and direction for Peter. So that's three times to match the three denials. So Jesus reveals his heart of compassion. Peter, you're not kicked off the team. Peter, I've got work for you to do. Peter, there's a lot of work to be done in you. He reveals who he is to to Peter in the moment of the resurrection. Peter's response, right? Okay, Jesus, I'm going to take this song. 
right? So that's why, frankly, um, in the epistles of Peter, I think that there's a lot of stress on shepherding language because Jesus is speaking to him of, you're going to go and feed my sheep. You're going to go feed my lambs. You're going to go feed my sheep. Peter, note taken. Jesus, you're my shepherd. The teacher. So help me to respond to you like a shepherd. And he re reflects that leading in his life. Now, is that the only times that Peter needs God's re revelation of who he is, a response to that compassion and grace, and reflect that? I mean, we, we could pull on the tug of Acts 2, where on the one hand, Jesus or Peter gets in trouble for preaching this free grace and invitation for the Gentiles to join the community of, of God's people, and then match it with where the Apostle Paul has to rebuke him for playing favorites with Jews over Gentiles. So Peter has a lot of issues that he still has to work through. The point being, when Jesus calls Peter, he calls him to himself. Jesus wants Peter to know Jesus. He doesn't need Peter to know all the details of how his discipleship is going to play out. And Peter recognizes that he wants Jesus. This is why we talk about this whole loving Jesus together as our kind of mainstay for our mission. We are not a brand. I love you guys. I want us to be faithful to Jesus, but we're not going to be a brand of something that's like better than other churches. We're just going to be focused on who Jesus is, loving him. We're going to have our peculiarities. We're going to have our distinctives. We're going to have all those stuff. You know, like we don't have children's ministry on the fifth Sundays of the month. <laughs> and that's going to be okay. But the point is, we all come together around this idea of we want this Jesus who changes Peter graciously, who looks at each one of you and says, I want you. I want you on my team. I know there's a whole bunch of hot mess going on here. But I want you because I want you to know me. That's Jesus looking at King. Okay, we're going to look at this from the other angle. You guys cool? You got questions? You can send them in. You don't agree? Got questions? Totally cool. All right. So Jesus is looking at Peter and he says, you're going to be a catcher of men. Now, we're going to look at being a discipler or discipling like the maker. Here we're going to start verse 1 to five, 4, and then we'll kind of the last two verses of the passage. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets, right? So we understand all that stuff a little better now. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. He sat down and taught in the boat, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, what we just talked about, put out into the deep and let your nets, for a let your nets out for a cat. And then 10 to 11. And there was also with Peter, John, James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon, that's Peter. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they let everything and they left everything and followed him. So there's a few things. Being a fisher of men is just kind of like this whole New Testament idea being somebody that pursues others to find life, right? Actually, the words that are used here for being a, a, a 
uh, a catcher or a fisher of men is a life preserver, right? It's somebody who preserves life. Because if you think about the image, there's a, it breaks down a little bit, right? Because fishermen, they go out and they catch fish so that the fish can die. They can take them to market and make their, their profit off of the dead fish. doesn't quite add up to how we want to treat people, right? At least not here. Um, so the image being when Jesus says you're going to be a fisherman, a catcher of men, the language used there is a life preserver, right? Somebody who preserves and restores a life. How does Jesus go about doing it? Because ultimately, we want to be shaped to be disciple makers, evangelistic, however you want to frame that, like Jesus. Well, you'll notice here at the beginning that on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Right? Jesus was known for being somebody who cared about God, loved God's word, and cared about other people, right? Fundamentally, that means that as we follow Jesus' example, being known is a good thing. Do you have non-Christian friends who just know that you love Jesus, that you care about him and care about those people around you? Like, it's a broad just kind of being involved with the world around us. This is what Jesus is doing, a person of the word, who's defined by grace, that's accessible to the people in his life. But also, it's not just that people are kind of pressing into Jesus and he responds to all the same. You'll notice very quickly in this passage, it goes from the crowd to Peter very quickly. Jesus narrows in on Peter. It's okay, and you're kind of, how you think about evangelism and your discipleship, just say like, you know what? I've got this one friend of mine praying for him prioritizing that friendship. I want that person to know and follow Jesus. Right? This is not just, I want to be really clear here. This is not a manipulation kind of like tactic where we uh, trick people into coming. Like the, the goal of discipleship, like if they come to King's Cross, great. The goal is for them to meet Jesus. That's the important part. I, if it's at King's Cross on 10 o'clock on Sunday morning, don't care. I want them to know Jesus. That's the point. Not, did you get to church? The point is that do we love people in a way where they know us uniquely and that they know that we love them particularly? Like that's a part of the discipleship model. And you notice here being near to who Jesus is. Jesus in this passage is standing and talking to a bunch of people. He sits, he's walking with, he's around, right? He spends time with everybody involved. Ultimately, saying yes to Jesus means saying no to other things and giving things up. When people are responding to Jesus, it can be scary. Because just like Peter, we're going to get to this passage here and talk about it in just a second. And in verse 11, and when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. There is, in responding to Jesus, a leaving. There is a prioritizing of Jesus over the other things. So that when we come to this passage, some of us can think like, does this mean that we have to leave everything in our lives? Like, I don't know what your 401k looks like. I don't know if you have one. I don't know if you can make money or anything like that. But does this mean I've got to leave my wife, my husband, my kids, my work, my family to follow Jesus? I don't think that's what that means for us or the majority of Christians today. In this passage, being a fisherman meant you lived next to market. So 
being a fisherman was like a functional, like it was your identity marker. And what this means for Peter here is his identity is following Jesus. Like that, that, that's what that's what this is getting at here is that leaving everything is not a command for you and me. Hey, you've got to leave everything. It's a model to make sure that our identity is prioritized on Jesus and Jesus only. Right? Bonhoeffer has this great phrase where he says, salvation is free. Discipleship will cost you your life. Salvation, free to follow Jesus. But following him will mean sacrifices in our prioritizing of our lives. So that Jesus and Jesus alone is a central mark of our life. What's fascinating here in the story of what it means to follow Jesus, does, do you think Jesus knows everything that's going to happen in Peter's discipleship? All the betrayals, all the dis- disappointments, all the knucklehead moves, all the sins, all that stuff. Does Jesus bother to tell Peter about any of that stuff? No. The point is that those things are going to come. Jesus will deal with that stuff. Our lives get redirected and reshaped as we follow Jesus. So when we think about each other and our discipleship lives together, the point is that we keep Jesus at the center and not kind of hold up these agendas for each other before we can like, oh, that's a follower of Jesus. Because I'm sure if you were to kind of come to my life and be like, I was doing an audit of Jacob's life, I'd hope I'd kind of mark off the checks of like, being a follower of Jesus. I'm sure you'd find things where you're like, Jacob, I don't know if you can really be a Christian if you, you know, are on Instagram or Twitter or whatever, whatever your metrics are, whatever it is. But Jacob, I'm sure there's issues. But those issues are in the hands of Jesus as he directs us. Now we walk together as we share Jesus and get to be shaped by him. But we can't hold up metrics of like, you can't be a follower of Jesus until you address these. Because Jesus doesn't do that to Peter. Peter, you are going to be one of the biggest knuckleheads in all of church history. Does he tell Peter to address those things before he follows and he asks him to be his disciple? Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure proclaim and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.